Well, good morning again, Redeemer family. It's a privilege to be here with you all, bring God's word with you. Um, We are taking a very brief pit stop in the book of James twice this month, but in keeping line with the theme of this sermon series on the ordinary means of grace, I'd, I'd like to make some connections with what we've been learning in the book of James to the ordinary means of grace. So please go ahead and turn, tap, swipe, Right where we left off the last time we were together in the book of James, chapter 4, continuing to verses 13 through 17. And please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word here from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. This is God's holy and inspired word for us here this morning. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow... We will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him, it is sin. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we praise you this morning and thank you for revealing to your church your good, perfect, and pleasing will. That your will, the will of the Lord, is far greater, better than anything we could ever imagine or dream for the church. That it's your will that brings us the best made plans because you are the great maker. Let your words speak clearly to us through the Spirit of God working now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Have you noticed that there is an interesting phenomenon happening in the world of television these days? And they all deal with the idea of alternate universes. This is an idea, of course, that has been done before. Bill Murray living out the same day over and over in Groundhog Day. A reimagined history and world where Hitler wins World War II and a man in the high castle. But new series like the TVA and the new Marvel series Loki, right? But lately, Hollywood has been diving into this hard, this premise. And there's clearly a demand from both viewers and studios to think about the possibility of what would happen if the choices or events in our life were just a little bit different. And why the obsession with this? I believe this is because so many people want to explore the idea that there is somehow a a better life to live than the one we currently have. We believe that if, you know, we had a do-over, if we could do it all over again, we, we would have just said the right thing to land that job, to grab that opportunity. That one wouldn't have gotten away. We would avoid all the regrets of what we have now. That somehow... In some alternate universe, we are the makers of our own destiny and control the variables that could make our lives perfect. Now, while it certainly might be true that our choices and decisions define our lives, this, this idea, this notion that we could, we could fashion the perfect life for ourselves, if we just sort of find the right maze pathway to get out of, is, of course, the prevailing lie of history. 
And see, this is the heart of the warning that James is exhorting the church here in verses 13 and 14 in your text here this morning. He's extending his conversation from the beginning of chapter 4 about selfishness. And now we're talking about how selfishness plays into our own lives when we try to be the determinants of our own futures. Look at verse 13 and 14 with me again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Now James here is speaking to a cultural phenomenon in his time that he was wary of the church embracing. You see, the first century cities of Palestine were areas of great commercial activity. And the churches that James was writing to knew that there was an economic opportunity available to them with a large number of people coming into these surrounding cities. It was a first century gold rush. And the end goal is the same as the end goal of today. Gather as much wealth as you can in the shortest amount of time while you still have the opportunity. Now, from the standpoint of ambition, this certainly doesn't seem evil, does it? In fact, this isn't even necessarily an anti-biblical idea. Scripture repeatedly talks about in Proverbs about the wisdom of having foresight, of taking initiative and being wise with everything, including your future career and finances. So why does the book of James warn us in verse 14 about having this kind of ambition? What's, what's the big deal? I mean, this can't be surely about a sin of making plans or, or sin of making money. Those aren't, those aren't things that the Bible necessarily condemns. What is he going about here with this? What James is trying to do is that he's saying that you cannot carve out a calling that is apart from the will of God. You cannot carve out a calling that is apart from the will of God in your decision-making. James here is wanting to snap the church back to the reality by reminding us of who we are as creatures and the limitations of being in the potter's hands. You see, there's so much more to our lives than the here and the now. And that is why verses 13 to 14 speaks to the limitations of the human experience in our decision-making. We have no idea what tomorrow may bring. All the good, the bad, the ugly of it all. This is exactly why the phrase buyer's remorse exists and why the housing market in Charleston has shot up exponentially in the past year. You see, what we think we want doesn't lead us what we need. And our life, ambitions, come and go as fast, as verse 14 writes, as fast as mist and vapor. So don't misunderstand here. James is not saying that, that your choices and plans are inconsequential. Rather, he's speaking to the pride that one has of placing their hope into a future that is apart from God, when God himself knows the whole story. That is the word here in verse 14, that word for no in the original language. Out of the three words that James could have used for the word no, James picks the simplest banal word in the original language that he could choose. You see, it's a cursory knowing. It's like a student who walks in, only have reading the cliff notes to class, trying to fool the professor who's written a dissertation on it. There's no comparison. 
So if making our own visions of the future isn't how we're supposed to do it, well, then what's the remedy? This is where we get to verse 15. And the correction is given here of a qualifier that we need to put in front of all of our plans. And that qualifier is this phrase, if the Lord wills. Now, the phrase, if the Lord wills, is perhaps one of the most misunderstood phrases in all of Scripture. So let's break this down very carefully. And and I want to start here by saying that the will of God is understood in three different ways. And we're going to talk about all three when we talk about the will of God so that we as a church, as, as a people, don't get confused when we think about the will of God or the will of the Lord. So what are the three wills of God? The first kind of will when we talk about the will of God is God's decreative will. Decreative will. This is sometimes known as the secret will of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? The things revealed belong to God's people, but the secret things belong to God. Now, this, this decreative will, the secret will, is perhaps the will of God that gets Christians in the most trouble. Because the false teaching that is told by many believers, many pastors, many churches, is that Christians are told is that if you just try hard enough, if you're faithful enough, if you're good enough, you can discover and find God's secret, specific will for your life. If you have just pressed the right buttons, if you just date the right person, if you read an out-of-context Bible verse that promises you the world, go to the right school, find the right job in the right pay grade, in the right location, you will live the perfect, blessed life that you were meant to live because you found it. You found God's secret will. Congratulations. Go you. But I want us to consider what life would really look like If we live life this way, think about the implications of this. If we really believe that God's secret will is noble, that if you try hard enough, then you would not be able to live a coherent life. Now, why is that? You see, because if there is only one choice that leads to God's blessed life, then it must not apply not only to the biggest decisions you make in life, but in every single mundane decision you make. Because after all, according to this teaching, there can be only one single solitary pathway. What if eating the wrong breakfast cereal this morning was out of accordance with God's secret will for you for the day, and it ruined everything? Everything was just going great, and then you just reached for the Captain Crunch, and it was all over, all right? Right? Or choosing what tie to wear for that sermon you preached, and all they did was look at your tie instead of hearing at what you had to say. You see, the reality is that none of us can functionally live our lives that way. We go about our everyday decisions normally with the pathway that God has given to us in the here and now. So anyone who tells you, you know, I have a way to find the secret will of God— buy this book, go through these five-step programs, that they're not telling you the truth. There is no way to gain access to the omniscient, all-knowing being who has meticulously carved out the story of his redemption and his pathway for your life. Because if you had a knowledge of that, then you would be God. So it must be, as Isaiah reminds us, that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. 
So when verse 15 says, if the Lord wills, it's acknowledging that the Lord is working in a way that we cannot even begin to grasp, begin to understand. And so what do we do? We have to place our trust in God and accept the results of whatever's to come. That's the first will. What about the second? The second will is God's moral will. This is sometimes also called God's preceptive will. So the first will is God's decretive will. The second will is God's preceptive will or God's revealed will. This is the will of God as it relates to the commandments of his people. And so when we're referring to God's will in this situation, we're we're talking about the idea that, that God is never going to tell you to do something that is immoral. God is never going to tell you to do something that is against his written word. To make God do so is to go against completely his character. It would make God a hypocrite. It would make him completely against the idea of who he is. The best illustration that I can sort of present to you of God's revealed will or God's moral will is is found in Scripture. You know, in in the book of Judges, there's this little-known judge. We all know about, like, you know, Samson and Gideon, but there's this little-known judge that saved Israel by the name of Jephthah. Right? In short, Jephthah makes, makes a vow to the Lord saying, you know, God, if you will help me win this battle and save Israel, you know, I will go home and I will sacrifice the first things that comes out of my house when I come home. And so he does win the battle and he heads over to his house. And what's the first thing that comes out of his house? His daughter. Now, the question and the the tension of the story in Judges and about Jephthah is is to say, should Jephthah keep his vow to the Lord? On one hand, didn't he make a promise to God? Don't we need to keep all of our promises to God? But on the other hand, is that even a promise that he should have made in the first place? And the answer lies in the fact that Jephthah, like believers, like all of us, he should have read his Bible more. The tragedy of the story of Jephthah is that Jephthah doesn't know, nor Jephthah's daughter knows, nor any of his friends or his advisors. None of them know Numbers 18, which states that he could have redeemed his daughter and gotten out of his vow with silver. And because of that, no one is the wiser. No one knows what God's moral will has already decreed, and Jephthah's daughter is sacrificed. And Jephthah lives life in ignorance, thinking that he was obedient to God when he absolutely was not. See, God's moral will for us, his scriptures, the holy word, is is for many Christians the unforced error that we need to pay more attention to. Anytime our future or what we plan or what we think is against God's perceptive will, God's revealed word, word, It's not going to go well for us. Only when we are walking in the truth, in the means of grace of God's word, are we able to see our lives and our plans and our futures clearly. That's the second will. What about the third will? The third will of God. This is the third will is the will of disposition. The will of disposition. You see, if the first will is unknowable, it's the secret thing, in the mind of God, and the second will of God is known through the word of God, we can know God's perceptive will through his word, right? The will of disposition, this third will, is the heart of God. 
So the first one is unknowable, the mind of God. The second one is knowable in the word of God. The third is seen in the heart of God, the will of disposition. The will of God for his children to follow him and to trust him and to place their faith in him. He's disposed towards his children this way. It's the will of God whose heart for sinners is is gentle and lowly as we've been learning in our community groups. This is the will of God in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, which, which says that God desires all men to be saved, even though not all lay claim to the hope of salvation. And out of the three wills that we've been talking about here, this will of disposition is what separates us from every other religion. What do I mean by this? You see, there are plenty of world religions that teach the first two wills. There are, there are plenty of world religions that teach the idea that, that God's will is unknowable and that God's will is something to be obeyed. Check and check. But if we simply leave it at those first two, we haven't gone far enough in establishing why God's sovereignty is different than cold fate. We are only, if we're just stuck at the first two wills, fatalists. Now, what are fatalists? You see, fatalists are people who resign themselves to their lot in life, a sort of a cold, dark view of his existence. Fatalists sing that song that's sung over and over again, um, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, right? Um, for those of you who are much younger, maybe my generation, that heavy metal hip-hop band Linkin Park, right? I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, doesn't even matter. Thank you. I'm not the only Linkin Park fan here, all right? Gosh, all right. So how are Christians different from fatalists? It's in knowing God's will of disposition. It's in knowing God's heart. And how do we know the heart of God? How can we be assured of his will of disposition to us is more than a cold, dark bleakness, but is good and loving and merciful. The way that we know God's will of disposition is in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, we believe in a God who became incarnate, who lived among us. We believe in a God, the person of Christ, who experienced life as we see and we feel. That Christ would suffer many things for the sake of the people whom he loved. That Christ, who upon one of his final prayers before he faces the cross, models submission by praying to the Father, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Do you see how this separates us from fatalism? Because you see, when we look back to the cross and see that he has already taken away our sins, he has already given us his perfect righteousness that we did not deserve. He has already secured eternity in heaven that we just sang about, this, this eternal fellowship. Who else would do this except for a God whose will of disposition to us is love? The writer B.B. Warfield describes it this way. He says, The difference between fatalism and sovereignty is understanding the difference between falling into the grinding power of a machine versus falling into the loving hands 
of the Father. So how do these three wills, God's decreative will, perceptive will, the will of disposition, how do they help us to go forward and make plans? You see, without God, we're making plans believing that we are God, that only the perfect white picket fence suburban utopia will do. The future is yours to command. But, but see, that is silly because there's no way that we could know that. There's no way that life could ever guarantee that for anyone. Life changes just like that. I can't snap, but just imagine that a snap happened there. Right? But what if we applied the three wills? What does this look like? What if we say, you know, I'm going to submit to God's decreative will because He is God and I am just a person. I will learn his moral will, which he has graciously given to me through his word. I will study this. I will learn it, right? I will cherish it because this is his moral revealed will made known to us. And I trust that his will of disposition to me is love because Christ loved me first. Now I can go forward in making plans, knowing that whatever direction or place they take, that God's plan will lead me to something far greater and better and wonderful than I could have ever envisioned. Even through God's will of having his people experience difficulty. Many of you experiencing suffering right now, pain, trauma, it's only in the will of God where walking in the wilderness can be the right thing to do. Why? Because Christ has already paved that way through us by overcoming all that is wrong, by taking up his cross and dying for you and I. So how does this change us today? You know, remember all those predictions last February of last year that we would be out of this mess by the fall of this year, right? Maybe there's some of you who feel like I have at times, that we feel hopeless and maybe even numb. We don't even want to make a choice. We don't want to step out with any kind of conviction because we're just afraid of what might come. We're afraid we've missed out on it. If the Lord wills, reminds us that the pressure is off of you and I to play God without to worry about whether or not we've missed it. If the Lord wills, Gets, gets us to stop fantasizing about the past and what direction you should or could have gone and start looking for the pathway through the scriptures for wisdom to go on the path that, that he has directed you. If the Lord wills, gets you to stop being trapped by tribalism or feeling as though your will has to be guided by the approval of the masses and allows you to be critical of yourself and your own camp and your own tribe because you are no longer seeking to please man anymore, but rather you are seeking to please your Savior. In other words, you don't need to expect God's plan to be revealed to you sort of like a Google Maps or a Waze. You don't need a turn-by-turn -turn instruction on exactly where you need to go and exactly what you need to do. It's not like God's going to say in 0.5 miles, marry that person and have that child at this specific date. God has given us much, much liberty. 
as long as we are living in command with Scripture and living to glorify Him. Your job, who you marry, what causes you champion in life, these are all things that are given in the freedom of God. God has given you pleasure and wisdom to pursue them. And walking alongside you, God will be right there next to you, nudging you in the right pathway like any good shepherd would. In this way, God's will for you in your life is more like a compass than a GPS. When you see the compass of God's will, you can trust in God's will and love it. And as my mother-in-law says all the time, to give you just enough light for the step that you're on. To look back to the cross and trust and know that the Lord is good because Christ, our great shepherd, has led the pathway before us and is walking alongside us. And if the Lord wills, you will get to experience that more day by day and experience freedom knowing that in your Father's hands is the safest place you could ever possibly be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this encouragement in your word that reminds us that our plans mean nothing unless you are working in them. And so, God, may we trust in your secret will, though it remains unknown to us. We trust in your revealed will, in the word of God. And we trust knowing that your heart towards your people is good because of your son, because of the great Savior. Father, may we stop trying to play fortune teller of our own lives. May we stop living in the regret of our past mistakes, asking ourselves the question of what if, and instead asking ourselves, Lord, what will you do? And Lord, may we as a church, Lord, wait in eager hope and expectation, knowing that we know the end of the story, knowing, Lord, that you will be coming home for your people in your kingdom that's established forever and ever. And with that, may that give us peace and confidence in your plans, your will to be done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.